0: You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Quest for Sustainable Business, an epic journey in search of corporate responsibility. Roots and Shoots, Empires in the Wilderness, Zimbabwe, A Child of Africa. Do our childhood experiences shape our future careers? To a greater or lesser extent, I believe they do. In my case, they certainly had an indirect influence. I was born an African in a country known today as Zimbabwe, then still Rhodesia, and named after the colonialist Cecil Rhodes in the late 1800s. Today, despite having travelled to over 70 countries during the course of my life and work, and despite living in the UK as I write this, I retain a strong and proud African identity. Growing up in Africa, basking in her sunshine and breathing her dust, I cannot help but be acutely and painfully aware of the injustices and suffering that the land and its people have endured for centuries. Exploitation by conquerors, mercenary slave traders, corrupt politicians, military dictators, and unhinged megalomaniacs. Could my immersion in the continent's struggles have planted the seed for my own subsequent struggle against the injustices that communities and nature have endured at the hands of business? Unbeknown to me, while growing up, my country and hometown are both classic examples of the long-standing abuse of corporate power in the pursuit of wealth. I was born in a small town called Bulawayo, a Si Ndebele name with the rather ominous meaning a place of killing. This is thought to be a reference to the struggle of Prince Lobengula to claim the throne of his father King Misalikatsi, who founded Bulawayo in around 1840. But the town turned out to be part of a much bigger struggle, the so-called Scramble for Africa, the rush by colonial empires to grab and control the continent's mineral riches. At the heart of this imperial quest in Africa was Cecil John Rhodes, English-born explorer turned entrepreneur and business magnate. Who founded De Beers, the mining company which at one time controlled 90% of the world's diamond trade. It all began when Rhodes joined the diamond rush and headed to Kimberley in South Africa in 1871. Over the next 17 years, financed by the private investment bank Rothschild, Rhodes succeeded in buying up all the smaller diamond mining operations in the Kimberley area. His monopoly was entrenched in 1889 through a strategic partnership with the London-based Diamond Syndicate, which agreed to control the world supply of diamonds and thereby maintain high prices. It was also in 1889 that Rhodes established the British South Africa Company, which was empowered under royal charter to trade with African rulers such as King Lobengula as well as to form banks to own, manage, grant or distribute land and to raise a police force. In return, the company agreed to develop the territory it controlled, to respect existing African laws, to allow free trade within its territory and to respect all religions. Four years later, the very same company recruited its own army and invaded King Lobengula's territory in what became known as the 1893 Matabele War. The troops and white settlers occupied the town and Bulawayo was declared a settlement under the rule of the British South Africa Company. Rhodes ordered that a new town be built on the ruins of Lebangula's royal palace. Two years later, Rhodes used his company to hatch another dubious plot. In an attempt to bring South Africa under British rule, he planned to stimulate unrest among foreign workers, so called uitlanders, and to use the outbreak of open revolt as an excuse to invade and annex the territory. Unfortunately for Rhodes, what later became known as the Jamison Raid was prematurely launched in December 1895 and only managed to push within 20 miles of Johannesburg before superior Boer forces compelled Sir Leander Starr Jamison and his men to surrender. Jamison was subsequently tried in London, found guilty and sentenced to 15 months' imprisonment as a first-class misdemeanant. Rhodes managed to elude any charges of complicity. For me, the lesson to learn from Rhodes and his British South Africa company is clear. When companies have too much power either political power or economic power by virtue of being a monopoly or oligopoly, they will tend to abuse that power to enrich themselves. The fusion of private economic interest with public political sanction is the ultimate toxic recipe for corporate irresponsibility. We see it in all the classic cases of business crimes against society and the environment whether it is through the regressive political lobbying of the oil industry in the United States or the majority ownership of Shell by Nigeria's former military dictatorship government. We also find echoes of this same lesson in the story of Rockefeller and his Standard Oil Company, which I wrote up as a case study in my book The Age of Responsibility. Despite his latterly acquired reputation as a great philanthropist, Rockefeller was a businessman with highly dubious ethical credentials. In the process of building Standard Oil into a company that monopolized 90% of oil refining in the United States, he was involved in a variety of shady dealings, from cartel collusion and predatory pricing to excessive market aggression. For example... Over a four-month period in 1872, in what was later known as the Cleveland Conquest or Cleveland Massacre, Standard Oil performed hostile takeovers of 22 of its 26 competitors in the region. Rhodes' use of private military forces also reminds me of the lessons learned by BP in Columbia, where the company was accused of complicity in human rights abuses in 1996. As then-CEO John Brown later recalled, and I quote, BP entered that country seeking a tantalizing prize of rich resources amidst violent insurrection, a polarized society, and dark undercurrents in politics. Clearly, security was a challenge, but we assumed we had the answer, a thick barbed wire fence with security personnel, and, if necessary, the help of the Colombian army. What we hadn't realized was that a fence keeps you in as well as others out. The company's brand, its reputation, and ultimately its value had been laid on the line because of our failure to fully appreciate our human rights responsibilities, end quote. Growing up wild. The fact that I grew up in a country where human rights were being systematically undermined was a realization that only came later. My childhood was spent, not unhappily, in the midst of the so-called Rhodesian Bush War, in which the black indigenous majority were fighting for independence from white colonial minority rule, then under Prime Minister Ian Smith. I was too young to understand the true significance of what was playing out all around me. It was only belatedly, in South Africa... That I came to understand the malignancy of blind belief in white superiority and the horrors of institutionalized racism. For me, the early character shaping influence of growing up in Africa was something far less moralistic. If there was a defining theme, it was proximity to nature. My parents often took us to visit my grandparents' dairy farm where we played in the haystacks. At other times, we went camping, canoeing, or on safari. One of the clearest memories I have is of visiting Hwangia National Park, then called Wanki, which is Zimbabwe's largest game reserve, a short plane hop from Victoria Falls. Apart from the incredible wildlife we inevitably encountered, everything from elephants, giraffes and crocodiles to zebras, warthogs and monkeys, there was an early incident one morning that is branded in my memory. An antelope ran into the forecourt of the hotel, cut and bleeding and still entangled in a poacher's wire snare. The frightened deer was caught, the wire snare removed, and released back into the wild. Little did I know at the time but I had witnessed a potent symbol of another war that was already raging, between man and nature, between conservation and development, between environmental protection and community inclusion, between the value of biodiversity and the economics of greed. This was brought into even sharper focus years later, in April 1990, when I returned to Zimbabwe for a Pan-African Wildlife Management Conference, organized by the student organization ISEC. After the conference, on board the trans Karoo train from Harare back to Cape Town, I vented my frustration in a letter to a friend. And I quote The conference was really worthwhile, although at times frustrating. Worthwhile because it brought together people from Zambia, Botswana, Kenya, Zimbabwe, and South Africa. Also, it made one more aware of the importance, even the necessity, of conserving our environment, and in particular, our wildlife. But frustrating for me because conservation seems to involve treating wildlife as a commodity as something which humanity owns and has the right to determine the destiny of. What am I talking about? I'm talking about wildlife managers having the audacity to decide that the life of an elephant is worth $5,000 or an impala $75. These are the trophy fees for sporting hunters. Even the idea of culling wildlife seems wrong to me. Indeed, the concept of wildlife management or environmental management, seems a contradiction in terms. An environment manages itself. Isn't our interference at the heart of the problem? End quote. Only elephants should wear ivory. I'm probably not quite so purist these days, but I do remember that passions were running at fever pitch at that time. Wildlife poaching, especially of elephant and rhino, was at horrific levels. And there was growing pressure under the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wildlife, Fauna and Flora, or CITES, to restrict the sale of ivory and other wildlife commodities. In Kenya alone, the number of elephants had plummeted from 65,000 in 1979 to 17,000 in 1989. In a dramatic and controversial act... On 19 July 1989, Kenyan President Daniel Moy set fire to a 12-ton, 20-foot-high pile of elephant tusks, a gesture to persuade the world to halt ivory trading. The tusks were from more than 2,000 elephants shot over the previous four years and would have fetched about $3 million on the open market. Most of these tusks were recovered by the Wildlife Conservation Department from elephants that poachers had shot but left behind. What made tensions run high at our conference was the fact that Zimbabwe, which had been more effective in controlling poaching, were against the proposed CITES ban on ivory trading. They had huge stockpiles of ivory from culling activities and wanted the opportunity to turn these into cash. One of the amusing incidents at the conference came at the end of proceedings. The Kenyan delegation of students told the Zimbabwean conference organisers that they had a gift to give, a small token of gratitude to their generous hosts. And what was the gift? It was a set of t-shirts that read, Only elephants should wear ivory. The CITES-led international ban on ivory trade did eventually come into force, in 1995, resulting in a dramatic recovery of elephant populations. In South Africa, the numbers more than doubled, rising from 8,000 to over 20,000 in the 13 years after the ban. Now the problem was overpopulation in the game reserves, with consequent damage to the environment. As a result, the pendulum swung back again, and in February 2008, the ban on the ivory trade in southern Africa but not elsewhere, was lifted, once again sparking controversy among environmental groups. According to the World Conservation Union, or IUCN, today there are between 470,000 and 690,000 African elephants in the wild, considerably down from an estimated 1.3 million in 1979, but by no means endangered. In fact, according to a recent analysis by IUCN experts, most major populations in eastern and southern Africa are stable or have been steadily increasing since the mid-1990s at an average rate of 4.5% per year. This is certainly in part due to the CITES agreement, which entered into force in 1975. Today, CITES accords various degrees of protection to more than 30,000 species of animals and plants that are traded as live specimens, fur coats or dried herbs. The sixth mass extinction. I'm convinced that these and other international regulatory frameworks are absolutely essential in trying to halt what scientists in Nature magazine have called the sixth mass extinction. But I would not want to create the impression that the precipitous loss in biodiversity is primarily due to illegal poaching activities. By far the biggest cause of species decline, which is now happening a hundred to a thousand times more rapidly than the natural background rate, is a loss of habitat due to change in land use. In other words, converting wilderness and forest areas into farms, mines and urban areas. According to the Global Footprint Network, the world's ecological footprint exceeded the Earth's biocapacity by 50%. Overall, humanity's ecological footprint has doubled. The ecological footprint tracks the area of biologically productive land and water required to provide the renewable resources people need, and the Earth's biocapacity is simply the area actually available to produce those renewable resources and absorb carbon dioxide. This ecological overshoot is largely attributable to our carbon footprint which has increased 11-fold since 1961 and by just over one-third since 1998. The water footprint of production provides a second measure of human demand on renewable resources And shows that 71 countries are currently experiencing stress on blue water sources, which means sources of water people use and do not return, with nearly two-thirds of these experiencing moderate to severe water stress. Another measure of our catastrophic loss of biodiversity is WWF's Living Planet Index, which reflects changes in the health of the planet's ecosystems by tracking trends in nearly 8,000 populations of vertebrate species. Their shocking finding is that there has been a decline of about 30% of these species between 1970 and 2007. And in fact today, it's more than 50%. Stop and think about that. In just over one generation, we have lost more than half of our biodiversity. Theoretically, our grandchildren will have absolutely nothing, a barren, lifeless planet. In some areas, the picture is even worse. Living planet indices for the tropical world and for the world's poorer countries have both fallen by 60% since 1970. Under a business-as-usual scenario, the outlook is serious. Even with modest UN projections for population growth, consumption, and climate change, WW. estimates that by 2030, humanity will need the capacity of two Earths to absorb carbon dioxide waste and keep up with natural resource consumption. Certainly, having protected areas like nature parks, wildlife reserves and wilderness areas, of which Hwangi and Zimbabwe is one of 133,000 in the world, is part of the solution. They are crucial in creating the sort of affinity and respect for nature that I experienced growing up in Zimbabwe and which undoubtedly played some part in inspiring my later career in sustainable business. Reflecting on my own childhood, I must confess that I worry sometimes about the new generation of urban, city-raised children. Will they grow to love nature as well or will they be alienated from it? Will the environment be reduced to exhibition zoos, natural disasters, and virtual reality games? When we have no personal experience of wilderness, do we lose our ability to care deeply about nature? For all our sakes, I hope not.